One of the biggest challenges for dietary supplements has been proving that products actually work. The traditional model for clinical research is expensive, slow, and not representative of diverse populations. As its name suggests, the company Radical Science aims to address those concerns with a much different approach, leveraging new tools and technology. For this podcast, I talked with the founders, Paleen Thorogood and Dr. Jeffrey Chen, to learn more about their work and overall mission. I think it's an insightful conversation, and I hope you feel the same. I'm Sean Maloney from Nutraceuticals World. If you'd like to offer feedback or suggest a topic, you can email us at nutraceuticals at rodmanmedia.com. Dr. Jeffrey Chen and Paleen Therogood, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. So you both have really interesting backgrounds, um, but I do want to start by introducing radical science. So radical spelled C-L-E instead of C-A-L, and in botany, radical is the root of a plant embryo, but you're also aiming to disrupt the traditional clinical trial approach. Um, now, Radical Science is established as a public benefit corporation that's offering proof as a service. Could you take a minute to explain your mission and what it is that you're really hoping to achieve and why? So our mission at Radical Science is to make it easy for the first time ever for non-pharmaceutical products to prove their true health effects. So these are things like natural products, things like supplements, things like functional foods, and they cannot access the clinical trials that pharma can. They do not have the patent and monopoly business models of pharma. And so how do we enable them to generate that proof? We have to make it extraordinarily more affordable and rapid for them to generate that same rigor of proof that pharma has, that earns the trust of doctors and insurers and, and stakeholders. But we have to make it at a way that is actually feasible for these non-pharmaceutical wellness products to access. And we do that through technology and crowdsourcing and an army of volunteer citizen scientists all over the country. So we're a very mission-driven company. And we believe that with this rigorous proof, these products are no longer these kind of fringe wellness products um, on the margins of society. They become fundamentally treatments medical treatments, except the beauty is they don't require doctor's prescription. They're never expensive. They can never be patented and taken away. And they sit at grocery store shelves for anyone to purchase. And, and that's why we also made sure the company was a public benefit corporation as a B Corp, because we are on this very impactful mission that unites our entire team, that unites all the partners we work with, that unites uh, everyone who's been supporting us to date. On that note, um, another element, as Be Be Jeff mentioned, we're a public benefit corporation, and that is also to make precision, uh, personalized treatments accessible for all. We want to make sure it is safe and easy for anyone to become a citizen scientist so they can actually learn from their own health journeys. We want to be able to make sure people can try different products for their different conditions and understand what works for their unique bodies. We also want them to understand what the placebo effect is all about. It's a whole world out there and it's important for us to ensure that uh, treatments are accessible for all and people understand there is a unique difference uh, for you know everybody, every condition, even changes over time. And so that accessibility, that removal of barriers for anyone to be able to try these things is very, very important. Now, you have an AI-driven crowdsourced virtual direct-to-consumer 
clinical trial model. Can you break that down a bit and explain how this work works and how it's unique? Sure. So the first element is the fact that we are a fully virtual company, as well as all of our trials are fully virtual. So what does that mean? It means that not only do you eliminate the cost associated with a hospital and staff on site, and these are expensive, highly trained personnel, research nurses, principal investigators, uh, doctors. So you are eliminating that cost. But more importantly, you can now reach people in a way that's never been possible with physical clinical trials. My eligible pool of people in my virtual studies is not the 200,000 adults that live within a four-mile driving radius of a hospital. It's the you know, two to 300 million adults that live anywhere with a valid U.S. Postal Service address in America. So that's the virtual element. The direct-to-consumer element means that there's no intermediaries involved. We are directly advertising and recruiting volunteers. We are directly shipping product to them. We are directly communicating them. We are directly collecting information from them. And we are directly providing back their personalized health reports. So there's many advantages to this. One is the amount of efficiencies that you can get when you do everything in-house. We're not hiring a marketing agency to do the recruitment. We're not hiring a trial site to collect the data. We're not hiring all these entities. But more importantly, when you go direct to consumer, by eliminating those intermediaries, you're actually reducing delays. You're also reducing chances of error. Because you can imagine, especially at a physical trial site, you have intermediaries that are collecting information on pen and paper. Then they hand that pen and paper to someone else who then transcribes that onto a computer. And each point in this process, there can be intentional and unintentional errors, conscious and unconscious biases that can be introduced. And you eliminate that uh, when you go direct to consumer. Our trials are also fully automated. And so that's enabled because we have these standardized protocols. So we are the only clinical researchers in the history of the world that will tell you the timeline and the price of the study and what you get before we even talk to you. It's just a set price. So this has gone from making clinical trials this kind of custom, um, unpredictable service to a automated tech product. And that automation also means further improvements in cost and speed and also further reductions in human error. So when we go to launch a study, we push play, recruitment campaigns go out. And at that point forward, there is very little human uh, intervention involved, unless there's a safety issue that pops up that needs human uh, review. But at that point, recruitment hits, people are interested, they come in, they're auto-screened, they're auto-consented, we verify their address, we ship them, or we randomize them, we ship them product or placebo, we're tracking their product in real time, we know when it's delivered, we know when to start sending information to collect consumption information, side effects, outcomes, and at the end, they're automatically unblinded and given their personalized health reports back, which is also something unique to our approach. And so these are just some of the key ways that we're able to make this such a transformatively different uh, way to generate proof for this industry that hasn't really had access to tools like this. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned affordability, speed, scale. These are some of the biggest pain points for nutrition and dietary supplement research. Now, diversity and inclusion have largely been absent as well from the traditional clinical trial model. How are you closing that gap? 
That's a fantastic question, and you're right. Um, basically, uh, tra tra traditional clinical trials, uh, pharma or nutraceuticals, have been primarily white men living in urban areas, which represents less than 30% of our population. And also, even in their case, only a couple of percentage points in the US have been ever able to be able to participate in clinical trials because it has not been easy to go there, so even, uh, even for that population. So, we're doing several things. Uh, first of all, we're removing those geographical and socioeconomic barriers to entry. Uh, going virtual is certainly one of them. That way, really anyone can participate in a clinical trial wherever they may live. Uh, that includes rural populations, that may include single parents, that may include disabled people. So anyone can participate. So that makes a massive difference in terms of diversity. Um, we also uh, put in uh, gender quotas. Uh, our clinical trials have been uh, achieved gender parity from since day one. Uh, we um, include uh, over 20% ethnicities, over 20% rural population. So we make sure that we're actually representing the population of America, because at the end of the day, it's really important for us to make sure everybody can actually have access to them and also fact check the both the benefits as well as potential side effects of how different products may work for their unique bodies. The other piece is making this easy and simple, making it low touch. When you're going to a physical site, it may take you hours to drive there, go inside, you know, get, you know, go through whatever may have to go through and come back. So it takes a long time. We want to make sure the entire experience is, you know, takes uh, less than half an hour to an hour through the entire course of uh, this, the study from taking your baseline information to being able to in, uh, provide information as to what you're taking your adherence information as well as getting your weekly information about how this product may be affecting you, whether it's benefiting you or if you have any side effects, making sure that this is really, really easy. And then part of our goal also is ensuring that there is trust because there's also been traditionally lack of trust in clinical trials. One of the ways we do that is by unblinding people at the end of our trials and giving people their data back. So they know what they've taken. It may be placebo, it may be various forms of products. So they actually learn about what they've taken. They learn about the placebo effect as well as they get their data in an analyzed format. So they can learn how things that may have affected them. They may see how they affected them compared to the placebo group. And it's a report they can even take to their doctors. So that education factor really improves trust, which makes people want to participate more or even tell, tell it to their friends and family. So again, it brings this sense of community, which as a public benefit corporation is one of our goals. Now, you mentioned, I think, Pauline, uh, precision nutrition. You talked about uh, predictive nutrition. Uh, I wonder if you could spend some time on what those terms mean and what this might look like in practice. You have a, a background in in data and big data analytics, um, website stories from other firms. So you've really sort of been in this field for a long time. How does this data enable or allow for precision nutrition? Sure. You know, if you uh, just to take it back to what you mentioned, website stories. So for some context, I think could be helpful. Uh, that's correct. My background is in uh, data science, applied math, uh, and I was in uh, the, the revolution around precision marketing, where uh, large data sets over time enabled businesses to be able to uh, promote the right products to the right people uh, at the right time over the right channels so that there was a match about you know 
uh, people who were, were thinking they might want to have dog food and all of a sudden they got a dog food ad, right? So it was incredible. It was like magic. It's because we had the data sets to be able to be predictive. And while that's great and it's obviously very useful uh, for uh, you know, connecting people, what I believe what's really, really important is really about precision nutrition, precision medicine. And the only way we can get there is by, again, collecting very large data sets over time, understanding how different products, different uh, dosages may work for our unique bodies and different uh, unique conditions over time. And the other piece that's really important is for us to be able to fact check those benefits and side effects for each person and collect that body, collect that uh, set of data so that we can leverage AI, we can leverage machine learning to be able to understand exactly what are the dimensions that may be predictive of what something works. It may not be gender, it may not be age, it may be coffee drinking habits, it may be other lifestyle choices, right? So it's really important for us to understand why something works for somebody and understand what are those diff different dimensions. So we've been able to do that in other areas of business. Uh, it's obviously harder to do that for the human body. There are many more dimensions, but we do have the technology to be able to do the analysis. And we certainly have the technology to be able to collect those large data sets. And again, part of our goal here is, and part of the reason for the inclusion is to make sure, A, we collect data from all kinds of people, but we also collect data from large samples of people so that we can be more predictive. So at the end of the day, each one of us feels much more confident about the types of products that we believe will be right for us right here, right now. Yeah, I imagine that that also um, has implications for uh, um, synergies between ingredients, but also interactions. You know, if somebody's taking certain drug medication and how that might interact with, with some natural products, which I think is maybe a conversation that we haven't had um, that doesn't get a whole lot of play in, uh, among consumers, at least. Um, and I wonder that can that can probably have implications for doctors and patients as well. Um, Once you collect all this, these data sets, you'll be able to analyze and understand what those drug interactions can be and how different dosages may work differently for different people again. So it, it really, that this, the dimensionality of the data, the size of the sample, as well as the diversity of the population we collect from are the key elements. And then we have the technology to be able to analyze and get closer and closer towards precision medicine. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I think I heard from you that like 97% of Americans have a smartphone these days. And I wonder if you could speak to the advancement of wearable technologies uh, and how this is that revolution has enabled the work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. This this model that we're doing now is not possible ten years ago for a variety of reasons. But namely that the you know you needed everyone to have a supercomputer in their pocket. You needed widely accessible broadband uh, connectivity, both inside the home and outside the home. You needed ways to assess biomarkers uh, in a virtual environment, and that technology has really flourished even in in recent years. These direct to consumer kits that can collect saliva, blood, and stool and run dozens, hundreds of different biomarkers and these small samples that can be self-administered and self-collected. And yes, the wearable revolution that you're seeing, you know, in fact, I'm wearing a, you know, like an aura ring right now. And so all of this was critical. Uh, and 
with this, you actually can now have this approach that we can take. And because you can still have double blinding, randomization and placebo control, the fact that you're directly collecting data from participants, sometimes it's a biomarker, sometimes it's a validated patient reported outcome measure that enables this approach again at a fraction of the cost and the speed. And now what's interesting is there are some, in fact, there are many health areas where a wearable or a biomarker don't really play a role in tracking the outcome. And in fact, if you look even in the pharmaceutical world, there are pharma drugs that are approved all the time for mental health or behavioral health issues uh, or things like pain uh, that have no grounding in any sort of biomarker or wearable device. And it's all based on validated um, uh, reported outcome measures. And so for many of our standardized health areas, the these PROs are actually the gold standard, both within and outside of the supplement area. But in other areas, there are the opportunity to add biomarkers, and in certain areas, um, wearables can play a role as well. Although what's interesting is these consumer wearables are not nearly uh, as well validated as even some of these simple uh, patient-reported outcome measures. And so that's an area where we're going to need to continue to wait for these consumer wearables to be more validated, to be used in these types of uh, clinical studies. Yeah. Definitely. I wonder, you know, is there skepticism of patients collecting their own data, whether it's these kits or how to use them, you know, compared, is there, uh, you know, compared to, for example, a healthcare worker who's been trained on how to collect blood samples or something like that in a clinical setting, is there, you know, a variable here where people are collecting their own uh, metrics? Sure. And so that's why these direct-to-consumer biomarker kits, they both have to be analytically rigorous, like the, when the lab is analyzing the specimen, the lab has to have procedures when you're working with small amounts of specimen to actually get these analytics. And they do those benchmarking where they do like phlebotomy, and then they do a couple drops of blood from an auto lancet. And they see that, yes, we have these CLIA certified processes that can arrive at, at effectively the same uh, result. To your question about the self-collection aspects, those need to be clinically validated as well. So you basically have users. We didn't. We didn't run these, right? So these are these are clinically validated testing kits that anyone can purchase. Any researchers can purchase. They had to go basically take people and give them self instructions to collect, and then they also then sent a provider to go also collect that specimen from them, and then they see concordance between those two, and that they can say, okay, the instructions we. Pro and I'm sure it took a few iterations, but the instructions we provided can rely in reasonably similar results in the end. Now, another aspect of this as well is if you, particularly when it comes to health areas like pain or mental health areas or behavioral health issues, uh, when you bring someone into a physical trial site and you assess them on the spot, is that actually how they feel when they're going about their day, when they're driving to work, when they're with their family? No, they're sitting in a sterile clinic, you've had them sit through an hour and a half of rush hour traffic. And now there's a doctor in front of them or, or a researcher with a white coat on. And a lot of people are scared and by the healthcare system. And now they're asking you questions. And now you want to say things a certain way because, you know, you're, 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 you're in a, in a different environment. So in many ways, we actually believe not only is our data as rigorous as what you might collect on pen and paper surveys in a physical trial site or 
a specimen you may collect, they're actually more reflective of people's actual experiences. They're not as synthetic. They're not as artificial. And it's this synthetic artificial nature of the traditional way that we've done trials that may explain why so many pharma drugs look great in the pre-approval clinical trials. And once it's actually used in the real world, the results are very lackluster and doctors stop prescribing them and insurance companies don't reimburse for them. And so there's a disconnect between what happens in these artificial synthetic, often physically based traditional trials and what actually happens in the real world. And what we're basically doing is leapfrogging to that real world experience, getting more accurate data for our clients and doing it at a fraction of the cost and time. And with, to Paleen's point, greater diversity, that's actually for the first time ever representative of all of us. That, that, that was great, Jeff. And the other piece I want to add to all of that is adherence. I mean, when if you go to a physical clinical trial site, they're going to take and make sure you take the right dose exactly at the same time and you never skip a dose. That is not real world either. So really understanding how people take and understanding any variation on usage is incredibly important because that's how we behave. And that's going to be the real effect of any product, whether a pharmaceutical or a nutraceutical. So understanding usage patterns and adherence is a really important part. Only way to get that data is also real world. All the questions and, and questionnaires that you send to people, all the test methods, they're all validated. Are the trials that you conduct also IRB approved? Yes, all of our trials are IRB approved. They're also uh, pre-registered with clinicaltrials.gov. And to an, an earlier point also that I wanted to mention is when you have double-blinding randomization and placebo control, even if there are small outliers or small differences in behavior, what's nice is you're still comparing it to a control group. So if there are small outliers who miss virtual surveys uh, or small outliers who really just struggle to collect their you know, saliva properly, that's going to be randomly allocated to both treatment groups. And so any significant differences that emerge between the treatment groups, you know, are due to the one thing that was fundamentally different between the two, which is the intervention they received. One got placebo, one got the actual product itself. So it's it's really elegant in many ways that because you have this experimental interventional trial design that you don't need to worry so much about all these confounding variables. They basically even each other out. And on the topic of, and to your earlier question, Sean, as well, which related to what Paleen just said, oftentimes, at least when I was running clinical trials at UCLA that were physically based, you would send people home with a medication diary and they would bring it back on their next trial visit. And we had this running joke that we knew that a significant percentage of those participants were sitting in the parking lot, they're 10 minutes late for their appointment, and they're furiously scribbling in their medication diary. And they're you know, the recall is very difficult or they don't want us to judge them versus in a virtual trial, you can remind them to log information. You can ping them in real time. You can ping them regular intervals. They can give you a response. That response is time-stamped. It's immutable. It cannot be forged. It cannot be retroactively changed, which I cannot say that any of that for the medication diaries used in academic and even many of these pharmaceutical uh, physical trials. 
So we have a false sense of accuracy in some cases, if you think about physical clinical trials, thinking that is a better way to do it, but it is not representative of the real world, and it may actually not even be accurate because of all the, the auditing, timestamping, et cetera, that Jeff mentioned. So it's really important for us to understand the differences and not assume that that was the better way, this is just a cheaper way. It's actually maybe far more accurate and far more reflective because at the end of the day where we live how we live actually affects the the results we see whether it's the benefits or the side effects so having doing that in the real world and doing it across a broader population include including you know rural populations who may actually have different behavioral habits from physical activity etc it may actually change the effects of the products yeah do you i wonder if that may relate to repeatability of studies. You know, I hear um, that the number of, of clinical trials, either, even on pharma products, that if you conduct the, the trial again over and over, like it's the repeatability of it is, is you know, suspect. And I imagine that has the same to do with, with nutraceuticals and, and natural health products as well. Um, you conduct the same study the same way twice in a clinical setting, you don't always get the same results. Yeah, I mean, part of that, I think, can be attributed to, well, there's a few things here. One, when each study has a small sample size, it means that there's tons of variance and tons of margin for error. Uh, you can't, you, you know, you basically have these confidence intervals. You say, here's the average but our confidence interval is massive because it could fall anywhere within that. That's just kind of where our average sits. So if you have 10 small studies, they are maybe maybe difficult for them to replicate simply because each of the sample sizes was small. So you have these large rooms for error. You cannot be that precise. That's one thing. Number two, you're right. One study was done in Milwaukee. Another study was done in Miami. Another study was done in you know Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, fundamentally different populations, different types of behavior, lifestyles, all these things, as well as who were the who were the personnel carrying out those studies, different teams of people. They're trying to follow the protocol, but like we just said, especially when there is a physical trials site, especially when there's face-to-face -face interaction, especially when there's pen and paper and intermediaries involved, there are both conscious and unconscious errors and biases that can creep in to all of this. And so part of this was, it was important for us to again, remove the intermediaries, go completely virtual and have diverse people coming into every study and automate the process. So there's less room for human error and also have standardized unified protocols as well. All of this wasn't an effort to also address the replicability crisis that you see actually described um, throughout the academic and pharmaceutical world. Jeff, so you're a medical doctor, you worked in academia. Um... What what has maybe a little bit of your background? What what drew you to the natural health products world? I'm Chinese American, first generation. My mother actually studied uh, acupuncture when she first moved to the U.S. and was thought thought about getting a job as an acupuncturist. And and so growing up, I was exposed to traditional Chinese medicine. Um, but by the time I went to medical school, I basically was taught all of that nonsense, and I towed the party line. I went to UCLA for medical school. As you know, Los Angeles is a very kind of wellness, alternative medicine um, uh, forward area. So I had patients who'd say, hey, I'm doing XYZ, XYZ. And I would tow the party line and say, those aren't FDA approved. 
stop doing that. Or like, I can't talk to you about that. Or, you know, I can't recommend that. Take this drug, take this pill, go get this procedure. And it wasn't until I started seeing more and more individuals who had seemingly inexplicable improvements in their health that were not due to any of the, in fact, they had at least stated that they had weaned down their medications. They changed their lifestyle. They'd started a supplement and they had fundamentally changed their, their chronic condition. So that was really intriguing. And the more that I looked into this, the more I realized, okay, it's not that these things don't work. It's that they haven't been subjected to rigorous study. So what I really then set for a path on was let's just level the playing field. Like if we could snap our fingers and we had infinite knowledge on the health effects of every synthetic and natural compound out there, there'd be a fundamental revolution in the way that we approach healthcare. In some instances, the synthetic pharma drugs are superior. In some instances, it's the natural compounds, but let's level the playing field and have an honest discussion about the effectiveness, the side effects, the cost, those three variables. Uh, and so I started a research that after medical school, I didn't want to just practice in the system and be a cog in a wheel. So I started a research center where we were running some of history's first clinical trials on, on a series of botanicals that had really been marginalized. And that's where I realized how slow and expensive trials were. These were multi-million dollar, multi-year trials involving less than a hundred people. All of them were local uh, residents to the LA area. We were not getting that much representation and all the innovative things that I wanted to do were not really possible in, in, in some of these bureaucratic um, traditional environments. So, so that's when three years ago, I set out with Paylene to fundamentally uh, change the paradigm of how we approach proof generation to also then change the paradigm of what health care could be uh, in this country and how people could self-heal naturally and affordably. Yeah. And now, Paylene, you founded Holistic Research and Education Foundation. I wonder if you could give us some some background on how you came to that. I mean, you grew up in um, in Istanbul, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, right? You spent time in Europe and went to Cornell um, and then moved to Southern California. I wonder how you came into the natural health field yourself. Well, I think I was kind of born into it, to be honest, Istanbul, Turkey, kind of the old world, right? So um, if you think about it, you know, humans have been using natural products as medicine for millennia. And, uh, you know, Turkey being kind of the cradle of civilization, I kind of grew up in that, like I've certainly had doctors and pharmaceuticals, but my, I also grew up with my grandma. It's one of those uh, cultures where a lot of different uh, generations live together, which is a beautiful thing, by the way. So uh, a lot of uh, the everyday ailments, tummy aches, whatever, like my grandma would make something, it would work. I, you know, I was always very curious about it, but at the same time, I was very happy it worked. So uh, it was a very interesting way growing up because natural foods, amazingly healthy foods, uh, my mom, grandmother's concoctions, as well as doctors and getting vaccinations and all the other stuff. So it was really across the board. Came to Cornell to study engineering, you know, data science, math. And so to me, I was always very interested in data and actually more so than data, big data and understanding patterns. To me, it's really about how things relate to one another and why different dimensions may relate to different things at different times. So um, as crazy as it sounds, one of the, my favorite courses was this course called dynamic optimization because nothing is static, everything moves all the time. So that's kind of how I look at the world. And then 
uh, awesome career in um, tech, uh, focused on data and analytics, and uh, was chief marketing officer of Website Story, where we more or less invented marketing analytics as we know it today. And uh, then I was uh, CEO of a predictive analytics company, where again, lots of large data sets to determine how we can optimize business. Um, then, um, in the midst of all this awesomeness, a massive health crisis in my family uh, with, uh, with my husband, where um, Western medicine and surgeries saved his life. But the aftermath of how to deal with the recovery, the pain, were not as successful, I would say, as the surgical interventions, which were incredible. That's when I wanted to go back in and see, well, there's a better way. Why don't we combine all of them? It's not one or the other, like Jeff said, right? It, there, there's different solutions for different situations. Acute issues, amazing with Western medicine. Chronic issues may not be as, as uh, well addressed. That's when I wanted to actually understand uh, the power of natural medicines and realized very, very little data existed on it. So one or two, uh, in collaboration with a few other like-minded philanthropists, decided to fund clinical research at the university level, working with many universities. That's actually, of course, how I met Dr. Jeff Chen at UCLA. Um, and um, was, I mean, drinking from a fire hose, uh, given med medicine was not my background, was very curious about all this. And uh, so how traditional clinical trials are done, really understand the rigor behind all of that, which was incredibly helpful. I also was quite you know, shocked to see truly how expensive they are and truly how long they take. Many of the clinical trials we funded years and years ago are still ongoing. And I'm very curious about the results. I'm very excited about what's gonna come up, but it's not the most efficient model. The other part was how small the sample sets were uh, and very, how intentionally homogeneous they are. Uh, F, as Jeff indicated, you know, one of the reasons for the differences in results is very likely how small and how homogeneous these data sets are, which are not generalizable to the population at large. So I knew there's something had to change and also really want to make sure that model applied to the things we take every day for our gut health, for our energy, for our sleep issues, for, uh, you know, um, for immunity, etc. So want to make sure we understood exactly how those things affected each of us differently and over time as well. To me, that time dimension is also very, very important. Um, so uh, Jeff and I decided, especially at the beginning of COVID, when virtualization really became a much more of an acceptable thing. We already knew we had the technology to be able to do this. We wanted to come uh, come in and disrupt the status quo of healthcare, certainly around natural products, and uh, also create the consumer movement to create that awareness so that we could actually increase that uh, literacy on the consumer side so they know what they're taking, why they're taking it, and what may work for their unique bodies. And uh, here we are, I feel like in a few years, We've already made a dent, and obviously, we are in a mission to really ch change how things are done. What are you hearing from your clients, and how they've, um, you know, how they're digesting all the, the data that they that they've gotten? I think they are very happy to get the results they get because they trust the data, they trust mm -hmm. the rigor. A few of our customers have backgrounds from the world of pharma, so they definitely understand rigor. Uh, they also understand cost and time frame. So I think they've been delighted with the cost. They've been delighted with how fast it is because it gives them the opportunity to iterate. But they 
they love the rigor. So it's not like they are giving up on rigor by just, you know, getting faster and cheaper. They believe, especially for the types of conditions we study, the patient reported outcome model leveraging validated and indices is actually a great way to do it. And getting that real world data is far more representative of the data. So they trust it across the board. And I've heard, uh, I mean, I think we'll actually uh, publish some of these uh, video clips from in some customer interviews, but we've been told uh, some of our customers have spent millions of dollars and several years to get less information and actually uh, oftentimes the whether the CROs or the academic university institutions they work with have missed deadlines and so far you know they're very very happy with the results and also the fact that we're meeting everything we promised from the cost to the deadline so we feel very you know honored with the trust of our customers and uh, with the fact that they're validating us across all angles like cost speed and rigor Clients are using us for a variety of different purposes. So the answer to your question is, what was the initial goal that they had coming in? Some are using us in the R&D process. They're handing us multiple formulations, trying to figure out if any of them are worth taking to market. And if so, which ones might be better than others? Um, others are coming to us with a hero product already in the market. They just want that, that claim. Um, but what's lovely about our model is because of the large sample size, we are giving them multiple shots on goal. So with a larger sample size, not only are you just, it's just fact, you're more likely, you have better odds of beating placebo with statistical significance, the larger the sample size is. So we're not doing these 20, 30 person trials. We're doing our minimum sample size is 500. So it's an order of magnitude beyond the typical uh, size of a supplement trial. And at that large sample size, you've given them a greater chance of beating placebo with statistical significance, but you're also powered for many outcomes. So our studies, our current uh, standardized offerings right now are powered for the primary outcome, as well as up to three other health outcomes as well, these secondary outcomes. So we've had clients who uh, did not be placebo on the primary, but they were able to be placebo on a secondary. And so in many ways, they were able, the large sample size was able to rescue the study and give them a claim and also give them a fundamentally new direction for the product. Maybe turns out they weren't developing, they thought they were developing a sleep product, but it was actually a, you know, anxiety mood product, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's, and we're always learning more. The more and more the clients come to us with like ideas of what, of in goals, we're always expanding our horizons of what's possible. And that's really because we've created this proof as a service platform mm -hmm. and it is as malleable and moldable and, and can achieve a variety of different goals. Uh, of our clients and but the first fundamental step was lowering the cost lowering the speed and letting everyone's creativity flow our team's creativity the creativity of our clients and really partnering together um, to to achieve their goals and talking about partnering it's really that life cycle engagement that we enable that initial r d innovation enabling them to uh, help customer acquisition through validated claims working with them on their own customer populations to understand consumer behavior, you know, um, you know, learn about adherence and things like that, how it's affecting actual customers. So working with our customers throughout the life cycle and becoming strategic partners to them, learning from them and basically partnering to achieve the same goal of making better products and also making sure consumers have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how confident you are in sort of convincing some of the skeptics or sort of, uh, you know, there are certain people who are gonna see us industry-funded research and sort of dismiss it. Um, I've heard from regulators that they wanna see, you know, 
verification of product formulas. Um, and from right now, it, from my side, we see a lot of suppliers do research on their ingredients, but then when people formulate, finished product companies formulate, there's not really science on that finished product formulation. Sure. How confident are you that this can really move the needle? Well, so, th so there's a few things here to consider. Um, yes, in the, you know, I think we all realize on this call that in the past, table stakes was, you know, use a clinically studied ingredient and and you're 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 good to go. Uh, but obviously that poses kind of a catch-22 where you're saying, no, 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 our formula is so simple that it is effectively the same as the ingredient we use. Therefore, we can leverage their clinically proven claims. But then that also means your generic commodity good that thousand other products look like. And the catch-22 is, no, 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 we're very different. We're so unique, unique delivery system formulation ingredients, but we still leverage the data of the individual ingredients, which at that point is so far removed from what we're claiming is our unique final product. So now you have unsubstantiated claims that you're using and you can't extend that data. And so really the solution is all these SKUs and final products, go get your own trial. Then you don't have to constantly look over your shoulder worrying you're going to get hit for fraudulent uh, lawsuits or FTC action or have retailers block you because they look at your substantiation dossiers and they say, you know, this is not doable. Now, that would, that what I just said was not feasible when a trial was a million bucks and took two, three years. Um, but the way that we've brought down the cost and speed by an order of magnitude, it is now feasible. There's now ROI. You could go run some billboard campaigns or you could go fundamentally change the trajectory of your brand by getting proof that it works. That's one piece. Now, on the skepticism regarding industry-funded research, we've thought long and hard about this. And the way that we're approaching is, look, at least you're not running the trial internally as a company. That's you know, pretty easy for people to be highly skeptical of. So we're third party running the trial. Yes, our clients are funding the trial, but here's the kicker. This study was pre-designed, pre-built, pre-IR-approved before we even met the client. This does not happen ever. And so the biases that people worry about with industry-funded research is when the study is basically built from the ground up to serve that client and, and to basically rig the game in that unique product's favor. That can happen with us. These are standardized master protocols. So for the same, the same implementation that leads to reductions in cost and speed and dramatically increases the predictability and dramatically decreases the risk also leads to less bias and less skepticism because this was not specially built for the client. It was not rigged in their favor. This was already built beforehand. I'm curious in sort of your backgrounds and, and how you came to collaborate together, how you can create a company and for a force for good of societal um, benefit. So I've been in C-Corps until I created a nonprofit. So I've been on both a C-Corp as well as a 501c3. And uh, I love the mission of a 501c3. It doesn't move the needle very much. It's much harder. So to me, there was this perfect connection between profit, but also bringing purpose and people together. So let's not pick, let's have an end. People, profits, and purpose all together. And I've seen that make a difference. There's so many people who are philanthropists who also want to make sure part of their money is at least wants to be used for, uh, you know, making profit, or they want to make a difference, but they know they want, they want to be investors. So why do you need to choose? So to me, uh, the B Corp mission is a beautiful area where 
all of those pieces come together people purpose and profits come together and uh, that's been uh, the dna of our investors that's been the dna of the people who joined radical science they came here to you know of course everybody makes needs to make a living they want to make sure they have salaries and they have a future but they also want to have purpose they want to come to work every day to actually achieve something that they believe in uh, with that in mind, I mean, we have 100% employee retention. So people want to stay, they want to do something, they believe in what they do every day together. So it creates a community within the organization, with the employees, with our investors, with our partners, and I believe with our customers, they realize that we're in this to actually make a difference. So that unification, that connection uh, happens when you don't have to pick, but we are really actually in it for all of those reasons at the same time. Our whole lives have been very purpose and impact driven. And in this case, we were able to merge two disparate disciplines, you know, data science and uh, medicine in a way that, and this is, you know, people say, you talk about radical, like, wow, that's so obvious, I guess. Why has no one done that? Well, it's because no two people um, with our backgrounds and our passions really came together at the right time. The technology could actually support the vision as well. Earlier in the interview, I talked about how this was not possible, maybe even, heck, maybe even like five years ago, this was barely possible, um, but is now possible. So yeah. in a way, we're fortunate that uh, our past crossed because of the purpose piece, because I was looking to fund clinical trials, he was working on them. We both saw the issues from two different areas. You know, me as the data person seeing there's a better way, this data is not even gonna be valuable for the clinical trial, let alone public health. And Jeff just living and breathing it every day and knowing that there's a better way to help these people. And together, we actually saw the bigger picture to be able to solve it. And we wanted to make sure that we created a company that had the purpose very much, you know, emblazoned on our chest so that everybody from our investors to our employees to our customers knew that we're on this mission together. Jeff, last question. I know you're an accomplished musician. You played at the Vatican, I think. You played at Carnegie Hall. Is, is there anything from music that overlaps with, with you know, science and, and research that you're doing now? Is there a common thread there or a principle? Yeah, I mean, I could give you the the kind of standard response when you hear scientists talk about art, where it's like, oh, it's all about discovery and creativity, except, you know, and, and that's fine. For me, what it has been, it's been less about the pursuit of music and how it inter interfaces with my scientific career. It's been probably more the pursuit of music, how it interfaces with my discovery of self. Um, when you sing, there's a level of expression that is really hard to emote otherwise through, at least for me, through written or spoken words or other forms of expression. Other people express themselves through dance. So when I sing, I'm able to access these feelings and emotions and uh, that is otherwise very difficult to access. And it's, it can be very cathartic it can be very expressive and get stuff out of my head, out of my mind. So that's one piece of it. So it's a lot of greater sense of um, self, greater exploration of my feelings and emotions and expression of that as an outlet. Uh, the other area where music has come into play is through all, a lot of these experiences, it has allowed me to be more comfortable on stages in front of audiences and really be performing, uh, which involves being very present and engaging with the audience and really taking them on a journey. And whereas my performing now from a music sense is, is pretty limited these days, once in a blue moon, I'll play at a, at a friend's event or 
once in a while I'll go down to the beach and I'll play on the boardwalk. But now that that performative element and that engagement with the audience and that intense presence comes out in my public speaking and my teaching and my classes and even uh, opportunities like this to speak to you and record this this show and, and record a podcast. So it, I'm very thankful for having had those experiences. Um, and even it came in critically for the TED Talk that I gave in front of, you know, 2000 uh, of this high caliber audience um, to go up there and be able to, number one, not fall apart from the stress and anxiety, but even though it was quite, maybe one of the most stressful talks I've ever given, um, but also yeah, take the audience on a journey, engage them, have them put down their phones for a few minutes and just be sucked into that performance. So that's why I'm very thankful for what that music has allowed me to do. Cool. Very cool. Great. Well, Jeff, Pauline, thank you so much for, for sharing. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you for so having much us, for Sean. having us. It's been, a, and thank you for making it so personal. This has been delightful. Appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. It's always great to talk to you. So we'll, we'll catch up again soon.